Hi everyone! Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from NVIDIA, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, CISA, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event! You're listening to Left to Our Own Devices, the podcast dedicated to everything product security. So this is a conversation that we've been looking forward to having for quite some time. Our guest today is Dr. Suzanne Schwartz, Director of the Office of Strategic Partnerships and Technology Innovation at the Center for Devices and Radiological Health of the US FDA. Dr. Schwartz is one of the most prominent policymakers and leaders in medical device cybersecurity, having spent the past 12 years at the FDA advancing medical device cybersecurity for the benefit of the entire world. And that's in addition to her being a general surgeon. We are honored and humbled to have her with us today. And Dr. Schwartz, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, David. Please call me Suzanne. And I'm humbled to be here. It's a pleasure. Okay, great. So Suzanne, you've reached such an important position in the FDA and in general in the market. Um, can you please share with us a little bit about your background and how and when you decided to focus on cybersecurity in your career? Sure. It's, um, it's kind of by happenstance. I've been at the FDA now at the Center for Devices, what will be in October 12 years. I didn't come in with any background in cybersecurity of medical devices or in information security, data security. It's actually not my field of training. Um, as you mentioned in your introduction, my training is in general surgery and specifically in burn injuries. In my journey, though, at the FDA, at CBRH, um, I was in the role several years ago of being the director of emergency preparedness, operations, and medical countermeasures. And in that role, in directing that program, our responsibility is to assure that the FDA and CDRH specifically is prepared to take on different types of hazards, whether they are physical or natural hazards or other types of events that may manifest as public health emergencies of different types that would involve medical devices. And lo and behold, in that role, what occurred back in 2012-2013 was manifestation of incidents and identification of vulnerabilities related to medical devices, cybersecurity vulnerabilities. And I have to say that this was rather new for us to be dealing with. And it was the leadership at my center who said, this is yours. <laughs> this is yours to deal with um, from a response standpoint. And naturally, I want to say again, I don't have that background. And it became really important for me to surround myself with the appropriate subject matter experts and to build a team that could provide the type of support and direction in what we would need to be doing in this field, again, which started off from us from what I want to say is a reactive posture in terms of responding to vulnerabilities that came to our attention, 
to one where then as a result of immersing ourselves and myself, particularly in learning and in surrounding myself with the right people and other agencies and other subject matter experts external to FDA as well, that we then moved into a position that was more proactive in terms of, again, uh, defining and identifying the policies and the expectations that the FDA would have in order to better secure medical devices, those prior to their going on the market, as well as those once they are on the market through their life cycle. Well, you seem to have done a really good job in putting that team together. I owe a lot to the team. They are, uh, if I wouldn't have the team, we wouldn't be where we are. That is for sure. It's not me. <laughs> it's my choices, I guess, of people that are, that are excellent. Very nice. So I would love to drill down uh, a little bit to the latest guidance, uh, the pre-market submission guidance uh, that you issued. So maybe some of our listeners are not aware of the fact, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure most of them are, that President Biden's executive order on improving the nation's cybersecurity has put uh, the issue of medical device and supply chain security at the forefront. And subsequently, uh, on April 8th, the FDA issued the, the cybersecurity uh, in medical devices, the quality system considerations uh, and content of pre- pre-market submissions. So can you please give us a brief overview of that draft guidance and its importance for protecting patients and, and caregivers? Absolutely. Um, so Shlomi, a little bit of background here, context that's important. We started really working on this journey around medical device cybersecurity again back in the 2013-2014 time period. And we had issued what was an initial pre-market guidance for cybersecurity at that point in time. We also made a vocal commitment that this would be iterative, that this was not a one and done, but rather with the evolving space of cybersecurity and what is learned through time and through experience, as well as with the evolving technologies, that it would be important for us to revisit this pre-market guidance and essentially to raise the bar. You know, the original guidance was nine pages. The current one that we just issued in April was approximately 40 or so pages, which speaks to the advancement within the field, within not only FDA's awareness, but with the work that we have been doing across the ecosystem with stakeholders as to what our expectations are of manufacturers as they look to develop design and put on the market new devices. So this has been the 2022 guidance that we issued in April as draft is actually a draft coming after a 2018 one that we issued um, and had received a fair amount of comment on from the public. We took that comment in time, digested it, and then also had the great benefit of that executive order that you referred to from May 2021. And we're very encouraged basically by seeing that a lot of what our thinking has been in terms of the direction that device cybersecurity needs to go from an operational standpoint, was very much aligned with the executive order in the areas that we have put focus. So at a very high level, I I like to kind of triangulate um, the guidance in three themes. It's trustworthiness, transparency, and resilience. These are three basic building blocks or concepts that we have emphasized a lot through the past several years. In terms of 
the trustworthiness that the public feel that they have can have confidence in medical devices that they will operate, that they will function safely and effectively as they are intended to function. One way that we see that's important to get to it and that we introduced in this guidance is the aspect of threat modeling and that threat modeling, you know, there's a science and there's a methodology to threat modeling. And what we had seen in prior years from manufacturers really wasn't hitting the mark. So we have done a fair amount of work on threat modeling, including working with partners to release a playbook on threat modeling that provides some examples of how to walk through that process and that the expectation would be that threat modeling needs to be incorporated within the pre-market submission because of the very nature of what we're dealing with that manufacturers should be evaluating as part of the design and the security features that they're building into the device, what are the potential avenues or vehicles or mechanisms or vectors of of being able to enter a device uh, and effect that device's safe and and, uh, appropriate or effective performance. So that speaks to the trustworthiness. Transparency comes up and relates back to a lot of the work that we have been doing in collaboration with other agencies, as well as with industry and with healthcare delivery organizations on software bill of materials. And the importance of being able to be communicative with the consumers and the users of devices that that they know what it is that is within their device, that there's transparency around that. And that's important not only for us at FDA to have that information as part of the pre-market submission that we review to understand, especially from third-party software, are there vulnerabilities that we should know about within this software so that can be traced back, as well as, you know, again, going back to the customer, going back to the end user, that level of transparency being important. The third element, resilience. So this really gets at the heart of the legacy challenge that we face today with so many devices that are out there presently on the market that in spite of being able to identify vulnerabilities in them, the ability to patch, fix, update those vulnerabilities for devices that have been, again, in use to sometimes 10, 15, or 20 years even, those devices are brittle. We know that in some cases, attempts to try to patch or update them will make those devices essentially not function properly at all. Where we want to be and what we expressed within this pre-market guidance and had previously expressed actually in a publication called the Medical Device Safety Action Plan is the importance of really trying to put a halt on some of the challenges that we see with legacy device drag today, that devices that go on the market anew, they should be patchable, they should be updatable, and they should be able to perform in the way that they're supposed to perform and receive updates and fixes in time, in real time, recognizing that vulnerabilities are going to continue to be identified throughout the lifetime of that device. So those are kind of the three major pillars, I would say, of this pre-market guidance draft in in April. Um, A lot of the alignment with the executive order on the software transparency piece, really critical work that we've done with um, the NTIA and Department of Commerce 
which is now being carried on through CISA and under Alan Friedman's um, efforts and leadership that I, I know you know very, very well, who's been a great partner to us. And, you know, I, again, one of the more important things to emphasize as a theme throughout this guidance was really making that connection or link between the cybersecurity device and safety and effectiveness. Because folks in the past have thought of those as really kind of two totally separate areas and what and didn't even understand perhaps in the, in the earlier days why FDA is taking a stance in this but recognizing you know that there are a cyber physical related matters that the physical functioning and performance of the device is going to be impacted by a cybersecurity incident or attack whether it's intended or not that becomes really critical in terms of being able to protect patients and protect the public. Wow, that's great. That is really great. Do you feel that it's already having an effect uh, on how medical device manufacturers and supply chain vendors are relating to cybersecurity? You know, slowly, slowly. Um, it's incremental. I can't say that it's in leaps and bounds. I think that um, over the years, we have really been faced with a need to undertake a significant culture change and a shift in really mindset. And that becomes probably some of the hardest things to do in any area. Um, you know, the technology is one thing, but really being able to convince folks in general that this is of concern, uh, and, you know, that's been a mountain to climb to some extent. I think people are more convinced around that, particularly as there has been Incidents of ransomware attacks involving healthcare organizations where systems uh, are interrupted uh, or disrupted and the ability to provide clinical care becomes impacted. And, and certainly we've seen a fair amount of proof of concepts with respect to how an impact on a medical device can certainly affect its function in ways that either it doesn't function at all or it functions inappropriately. And that can be very, very lethal um, or damaging to patients. So, uh, you know, there'd been years of, you know, kind of going, eh, hypothetical, theoretical. These are not things that we really need to be thinking about. Um, as we're seeing that that is not the case, that we have to face the reality. And we have always taken the stance as well that we're not waiting for that first, you know, death to occur or injury to occur in order to take action here. But the importance of preparedness appropriate for this month in terms of September in the United States is the uh, month of national preparedness. Um, mm. and, uh, and so it's a key theme to emphasize as well that one thinks about what the possibilities are and mitigates against them before they actually occur. So as, as a follow-up to that, um, there are various elements in the supply chain, uh, starting with even the board manufacturers and the component manufacturers that could be anywhere in the world. And then mm -hmm. you have the integrators and the, then the companies who are delivering the supply of components to the medical device manufacturers, and then the end users, the hospitals and the patients. So, you know, you mentioned transparency and resilience and all. So in, in different discussions that, I, that we've had with um, different, you know, parts of the supply chain, 
not all of them really feel it's in their responsibility area to make sure that, you know, that they are actually providing components that are vulnerability free. They, they do want to make that happen, but they kind of seem to put it all on the medical device manufacturers. And I know there are only a couple of hospitals in the U.S. that actually have the capabilities to check for vulnerabilities today. I, th- I think that's the case. Um, and I'm just wondering if you think that you know the responsibility lies in all areas or it's primarily on the medical device manufacturer. Yeah, you know, it's an important question. I'll start with the second part in terms of healthcare organizations being at varying levels of maturity and at varying levels of capability. This is true. And it's an area that we at FDA, working together with the healthcare delivery organizations through and the medical device manufacturers through various kinds of public-private partnerships are really trying to tackle some of those challenges, recognizing that this really does take a, um, you know, I, I know it sounds somewhat trite, I've said in the past whole of community type of an approach, um, and that there is a need for additional resources being put towards this purpose. Um, but that isn't to say that we shouldn't be incrementally doing what can be done. You know, it's the, what is that expression of, you know, you've got this like huge elephant to how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? That uh, it seems, you know, totally overwhelming and daunting to really try to take something like this on. Um, but if we were to shy away from it, then nothing would ever really happen, but rather truly really try to break it down into smaller pieces, recognizing that there are going to be even those early adopters um, who maybe have more resources and capabilities to be able to demonstrate what can be done and to then bring others along with them. So that's on the HDO or the healthcare delivery organization side. With respect to, as you said, there are, you know, there are pieces of this along that are owned along the entirety of the supply chain. And we do consider this to be an area that there is shared responsibility. But as far as manu- as far as FDA goes, our oversight is going to be scoped specifically to medical device manufacturers. So we do expect medical device manufacturers to be doing the appropriate due diligence. And that includes being able to look upstream or do the work that they need to upstream to identify, to do, again, the best that can be done in evaluating the various component parts that are going to be incorporated in terms of the finished product uh, the, right. you know, that, that will get released. So, uh, you know, obviously we don't have oversight on uh, the third parties uh, or other, like you said, the board makers and others. Um, But to the extent that we also don't rely only on oversight, but on the power of influence and on Mm -hmm. bringing people together and bringing entities together and bringing other agencies together so that, you know, really some of these very complicated challenges can be better addressed. And, and also the medical device manufacturers will only want to work with suppliers that are providing mm-hmm. them with uh, components that are free of vulnerabilities. So it will Correct. almost force them into doing their own checks before they actually provide those components. Yes. Okay, excellent. As a follow-up to that, it's actually a very good segue to our next question. Um so many of our listeners are, are the people who are in charge of building these new processes. So I'm curious, 
what advice would you give uh, to these people who are either ramping up or initiating their medical device cybersecurity practice inside of uh, the organization? Yeah, so I think that because you do have such a broad spectrum of those who are, again, just maybe, like you say, ramping up or getting started versus those that are far more seasoned and advanced, um, it does become important. And I think that the best piece of advice is for the newer entrants to really become engaged in a lot of the activities that are occurring across the ecosystem to really, you know, partner with the different efforts that are in place from which they can participate in different work groups or task groups, uh, learn a lot through exchange or dialogue. Um, there are a lot of resources out there to be utilized. And we, again, recognize that perhaps even some of the startups, they are not in a position with deep pockets that they can perhaps be bringing in folks to represent different aspects or different divisions that are within product security. But there are others that have been there before them and that can provide that kind of further guidance and counsel. So examples of what we have here in the United States, we've got something called the Healthcare Sector Coordinating Council, or the HSCC, which represents really a public-private partnership under the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, and FDA is part of HHS. Um, and that is a public-private partnership for critical infrastructure protection of public health and healthcare. And there is a very, very active and energized and many participants um, within the HSCC that has a whole slew of task groups um, that include medical device manufacturers, again, those that might be multinationals and very well seasoned versus those that are early, early startups. It includes healthcare delivery organizations, includes security research organizations and others and, uh, and the agencies that are involved as well. You know, these groups, by being uh, tasked with different objectives, meet regularly, they have the opportunity to exchange. We also have summits, you know, at least twice a year. Um, so really, you know, getting involved in that regard, and then you find out as well what other resources are available through that network. Wow, that's great. That's great. I don't know if I told you, I think I mentioned to you that my oldest son, uh, he works for, I, I won't mention names of companies, but he works for one of the top 10 uh, medical device manufacturers on heart valves. And my nephew mm. is working on strategy for a different top 10 medical device manufacturer. I don't think I told you though, that my daughter-in-law, my son's uh, wife is working on um She's doing clinical research for another <laughs> another type of uh, manufacturer, and she's actually thinking about cybersecurity uh, going forward. So, wow. it, which bring, wow. yeah, <laughs> which brings me to my my last question, which is, um, you've been active in promoting the professional growth and career advancement of women engaged in scientific endeavors throughout uh, the healthcare industry. And what advice would you give to our female listeners who seek to make a career in cybersecurity? Ah, okay. So I think this goes for cybersecurity, but for other areas, other scientific areas as well. It's important to summon up courage when you have a passion for something. And even if you feel as though you're not necessarily at that moment um, well-positioned or poised to enter, to really kind of 
you know, put yourself out there um, to network, to attend conferences, to reach out, to not be, you know, fearful of reaching out to folks who might be, you know, known uh, leaders in the field, uh, thought leaders in the field, uh, senior individuals. I would say for my own journey as well, and I always tell this to to my staff who reach out to me that, um, you know, it's actually very flattering when a more junior individual reaches out um, to you as a mentor to ask for counsel or to ask to hear about your own journey and your own experience because most of us feel that we want to pay it forward um, that we've had people within our own career trajectory who have done that for us and um, it can feel a little bit awkward to put yourself out there to make perhaps sometimes a cold call or to connect via LinkedIn um, and just send a note. But I, I'm always, you know, very appreciative uh, of, of receiving notes like that from folks who I may not even know who want to just hear a bit about my story in terms of how I got to where I got to. I mean, frankly speaking, I entered medical school thinking I was going to be a pediatrician. Um, I am a far <laughs> ways away from, <laughs> from that. Um, but um, I, I think... You know, it's to the extent of really considering that there are so many opportunities across the horizon. And while um, cybersecurity entering that area may feel somewhat daunting, that there's a lot of room and a lot of potential. And we need to see uh, that potential come to fruition by having women and men um, who have an interest, who have a passion and a desire um, to make a difference in this area, um, you know, pursue it. So I think that, again, you know, reaching out um, to individuals that are thought leaders, um, going to different events and conferences, um, reading up about stuff, um, and, and just networking is probably, you know, the, the key tips to, um, to consider. Great. Thank you for that. So I think there isn't a better way to, uh, to finish this conversation than, than uh, the answer you just gave. So, uh, Suzanne, it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, your work is so critical to so many people's lives. And again, we are honored to, to learn from your experience. Uh, so thank you so much for the time. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate. It's really been really been great having you on. Thank you, David. Thank you. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.